Hello, and welcome to When It Goes Wrong, the podcast exploring disasters, accidents, and times when everything falls apart. I'm Jasmine, your host, and on this episode, we'll be discussing the death of Chris McCandless in the Alaskan forest in 1992. So this might be a bit of a different episode to some of the other ones, but it's a case I really wanted to cover as I do find it really interesting and it's captured the interest of a lot of people around the world. So I think it is something that's hopefully a a good listen for you. Uh, A lot of what I'm going to talk about derives from John Krakauer's book, which is called Into the Wild. Um, I highly recommend it. It's a really great read, not very long. uh, So do, if you want a nonfiction read, do pick it up and give it a read. And it's also been made into a film, which Sean Penn directed. I think it was 2007. So that's also worth a watch. So most of it is based on that, but um, I'll put all my sources and other bits and pieces in the show notes as always. I'm going to talk a bit about Chris and his life up to when he went to Alaska and then what happened from Alaska onwards. I always want to call him Chris McCandles. I don't know why. When I see the word, that's how my brain reads him. But I will try my best to uh, make sure I don't do that. So Chris was born in California to Billy and Walt, um, and he had a younger sister called Corrine. And so, and by all standards, they had a pretty normal childhood. So the family moved to Virginia when Walt got a job working with NASA. Um, And Chris went to school. He headed up the local cross-country running team. Generally, you know, had a pretty good childhood, pretty good school life, made friends, all of that kind of good stuff. And he went off to college uh, once he graduated as well. But with all that said, there were a few things brewing below the surface. And Chris really didn't have a great relationship with his parents uh, around that time. So while his father had actually been married to someone else when he met Billy, who was his secretary, and while like basically kept the two families going uh, throughout a lot of their childhoods so he kept his first wife and then met and then basically went and and started a second life with his secretary and and they had children and all of that type of thing and when Chris discovered this he discovered this when he was quite a bit older he was very upset by it and very uh it really fractured his relationship with his father and that's quite key to Chris's personality I think because he was very you know you see a lot in his writing he's he's, he values truth above all else and so this really was a black mark against his family a few years ago from now so I think it was about 2015 Corrine Chris's sister wrote a book and she alleges in the book that actually alongside that there was a lot of domestic violence in the family when they were both growing up, both from Walt to Billy, but also from Walt to the children. And so again, that gives a little bit of insight into why Chris was very not connected to his family and not connected to his parents, uh, as as we'll see as we go on. So once Chris finished college, he donated all of his money to Oxfam and basically headed out on the road. So he donated like thousands and thousands of dollars. And then he basically just started to totally shun all concepts in normal life. He wanted to live on the road. He didn't want to earn money or keep money. He just wanted to go explore, find what was real and and get away from it all. So, and at that point when he did initially leave, that, at that point, he spoke with Corrine about divorcing his parents. And, and once he did leave after college, he totally stopped speaking to them at that point. So he initially started off in a yellow Datsun. So he started off in, in the car he had, but he did a 
kind of questionable trip to California and and basically drove into a desert. The desert then flooded. The car got flooded. He, instead of going and asking for help, he basically just abandoned it, took took the plates off it and abandoned it because he was worried that the uh, police would, I don't know, book it for not having insurance or something silly. So he abandoned the car and then carried on the rest of his journey off on foot. And he did a lot of hitchhiking. He did a lot of traveling by freight train, kind of hitching onto trains and using that to travel vast uh, distances across the country. And he he got pretty far, you know, he got around a lot of uh, southern uh, United States and he went down into Mexico as well, did a lot of um, canoeing on that trip. And he, when he was on this journey, he took a new name. So he started calling himself Alexander Supertramp who was his alter ego on the road, presumably because he wanted to be a super tramp, so be able to live on the road and and keep everything going that way. So uh, throughout his travels, so he was traveling for a couple of years, uh, he did make a few friends. So he repeatedly went back to work in a grain elevator. I did look up what a grain elevator was, but I think it's literally just something where you elevate grain <laughs> into like a silo. Vaguely interesting. So anyway, he repeatedly went back to work in a grain elevator in Carthage, which is in South Dakota, after he made friends with a man there called Wayne Westerberg. And Wayne was really fond of Chris at the time and explains that Chris really just wanted to go and live his life, you know, re rebuild himself, find what he wanted to do and, and really go and and, you know, discover the beauty out there. And so... Alongside that, he was totally obsessed with Alaska. So Chris was determined to get to Alaska. He really wanted to go. He really wanted to be fully off the grid, live out in the country there with, you know, no other people, no connection to real life, just totally get off the grid. And Chris, when he was there, he, uh, in South Dakota, he made friends with Wayne's mum and girlfriend. And one of them said a good quote about him. They said, there was something fascinating about him. He was hungry to learn about things. Unlike most of us, he was the sort of person who insisted on living out his beliefs. And I think that's that sums him up pretty well. He was very keen on on really showing and, and fully embodying what he wanted to do. So after talking for months about Alaska, whilst he was doing his travels across the country, Chris headed back to Carthage, back to the grain elevator, uh, to make some more money before taking the trip. So he needed, he knew he needed some new equipment, that type of thing. So he went and and started work there for a while. And but he was determined to go to Alaska at the at the end of April, and nothing could convince him otherwise. So Wayne really wanted him to stay and continue working for a while, but Chris just would not have it. Wayne offered to fly him up there um, if he would just stay around and work for a bit longer. But again, uh, Chris was just totally unwilling. He he wanted to he wanted to go by himself, but he also really wanted to hitchhike. Hitchhike was uh, part of part of the whole plan and something he really didn't want to change. So Chris departed North Dakota, sorry, South Dakota, and hit the road. And he managed to do pretty well getting up to Alaska. So he managed to pick up rides pretty consistently at that point, which was very good because the that road is kind of notorious for not being great for hitchhikers. And so he made it to Fairbanks, which is a city in Alaska. 
where he got dropped off. And at that point, he stocked up on supplies. So he bought a 10-pound bag of rice, a semi-automatic rifle with 400 rounds. Uh, He also had 10 books with him, and one of them was quite important, and it was about what plants could be eaten in the area. So yeah, so what all the different uh, like roots and berries and seeds and all that kind of thing uh, were around there. So he had that, and then he also bought some camping equipment. Whilst he was in Fairbanks, he sent some postcards to Wayne, to some of his other friends, saying that he got there and that he was about to head off into the wild. So when he was ready to go, he went back to the road and he started hitchhiking out of Fairbanks to the wilderness. And he was picked up by an engineer called Jim Gallion. And Jim initially thought he was just another kind of crazy hiker who wanted to get off the grid, but his opinion changed in the two-hour drive that they took, and Jim really thought that he was quite thoughtful, quite intelligent. But Jim was worried about Chris. He was especially worried about just his general lack of equipment for Alaska. It might have been enough to to get him, keep him going down down in America, but up there you needed a lot more. He was Worried about the fact that Chris didn't have a map. He didn't have any proper waterproof clothing. Um, And so Jim actually offered to take Chris to a store to buy this type of equipment to to make sure that he was okay. But Chris totally refused, said that no, he didn't need it. He knew what he was doing. The only thing that Chris did agree to take from Jim was a big pair of waterproof boots and uh, Jim's lunch. So he just took his some sandwiches uh, from from him to fuel him on his journey. And so Jim then dropped Chris. He dropped him at the start of a trail called the Stampede Trail, which was in uh, Denali National Park. And and uh, at that point, Jim snapped a photo of of Chris, which is the last photo that was taken by someone else of him. And then Chris turned around and walked out into the wild. Chris was now in Denali National Park. He walked about 20 miles from the road and came across an abandoned bus. Uh, so at this point, in order for him to get to where the bus was, he had forded two rivers, which becomes important. And both of them were pretty small at the time. They were partially frozen. It was still April, so there wasn't a huge melt at that point. So he was able to cross those rivers relatively easily and had made it to this bus. And the bus was one where a mining camp- a mining company had used it previously. So the trail that he was on used to be a-, a mining trail, had mining companies around it. The mining company had several buses. Some of them were removed, but for this, for some reason, this bus was left behind. Maybe it had something wrong with it. And so it just been kind of abandoned there. And it was, it turned into a bit of a landmark, you know, as hikers and hunters and all of that walked through the area they would stop and and see the bus in the bus uh, there was a small bed uh, there was a wood burning stove and you know just shelter general shelter obviously from the from the outdoors uh, originally chris carried on past the bus uh, so continued walking outwards but for some reason which we don't really know he decided to turn around and make his permanent camp in the bus as a base might have just been like the way it wasn't accessible or he just quite fancied it it was in quite a the bus was in like quite an open field with lots of lots of space um and close enough to all of the amenities that he would need so from there 
Chris started hunting, so he wanted to fully fend for himself and and live off the land. And he was pretty successful at hunting, actually. So he shot squirrels, porcupines, and different birds, like geese. Uh, He continued to forage successfully using his book as a guide. And at one point, he even managed to shoot and kill a moose. Uh, Initially, he saw this as like a real success to kill this moose, but then he didn't really know what to do with the amount of meat that the moose had. And so he did try and smoke it, but the smoking just didn't work. And then he basically all of it spoiled. And then following that, he just really regretted catching it because he just thought it was such a waste that he killed this moose and then all of the meat that he had was just left to the flies and the mosquitoes. And actually, I was watching another documentary on Alaska yesterday and the amount of flies and mosquitoes that are there was just insane. I guess if you're, uh, you know, at that latitude, uh, like in, I know in Scotland, just the bugs, the bugs, it looks so idyllic. And then you just see them just totally covered in them. Not very enjoyable. Anyway, so yeah, so he he was doing pretty well, uh, was eating well. uh, He was actually, I think one of the reasons this story is very interesting was that he documented a lot of the this trip. So he documented in two ways. He had a very short type diary in the back of one of his books. And it basically just had like the number of days that he'd been there. And then usually like one, two, a handful of words to explain what the day was. So, you know, on bus day, just says found bus, for example. So pretty light, but helped to explain some of, of what he was going through. He also took a lot of photos and I think one of the important things here is that he managed to take a lot of self-portraits, which obviously this was well before the age of the selfie. So he used a a, a timer and set it up in his backpack and then would take these self-portraits of him with either like the things he'd killed or just sitting with the bus. And I think the photos are quite iconic uh, and quite they really do draw you in into into what he was doing and, and how he was surviving. So three months after he arrived at the bus, Chris started to prepare to go back. So he wrote in his in his diary that he was preparing to go back. He wrote some lists about what he needed to do before he goes back. He took uh, another self-portrait of him shaved, ready to go. But it soon became an issue. So on his hike out, those two rivers that he had crossed on the way in were now huge. So with the uh, summer, with the melting of the ice throughout the national park, the river had swollen to, it was chest high, it was pretty huge across and it was really fast flowing. So it really couldn't be easily crossed, especially by Chris, who wasn't a particularly strong swimmer. He turned around at that point and went back to the bus and he noted in his diary for that day, disaster, rained in, river looked impossible, lonely, scared. And that's the most he's ever said really about his emotions at that point. So clearly it was quite an impact to him, the fact that he couldn't leave. And the real sad bit about this is that if, so there was a river crossing actually really close to where he was trying to cross. So there was a river crossing about 800 meters south from where he was based, uh, which had been built as part of all of the mining work. But because he didn't have a map and he didn't have any information, he just wasn't aware of it. If he had had a map or if he just walked south from where he was, he would have been able to easily cross, cross the river. He then, so he went back to the bus. He didn't ever try and walk out again, even though in the months that followed, in the time that followed, 
the temperatures were dropping pretty rapidly. So you would think that the rivers should decrease in size and should start to freeze up again. On the 30th of July, then, a diary enters in some more insight into what happens. So he writes in his diary then, extremely weak, fault of pot seed, which we're assuming is potato, much trouble just to stand up, starving, great jeopardy. So it indicates by the 30th of July that he is getting into some trouble. Up, up until this point, he has been pretty successful. He's been eating a lot you know, had no major health issues that we've been aware of. At that point, clearly something has, something has turned, something has changed from then on. So he's clearly, from that point, deteriorates pretty quickly. And it seems that he knew that he wasn't well and he knew that he wasn't really going to be rescued or, or anything that was going to uh, happening. So he knew he was going to die. Uh, he actually took a final self-portrait and in the self-portrait, he's very thin. He's re- smiling really broadly. It's a it's a nice photo. And he's holding a sign saying, I have had a happy life and thank the Lord. Goodbye and may God bless all. And so from then on, his last diary entry was on day 107, where he said, simply said, beautiful blueberries. And then on days 108 to 112, there were no words, just a slash, basically next to the number. And then from 113 onwards, there are no more entries. September the 6th, so just a few weeks later, a group of hunters came across the bus and on when they uh, approached the bus, they saw a sign on the door and the sign on the door said, attention, possible visitors, SOS, I need your help. I'm injured near death and too weak to hike out. I'm all alone. This is no joke. In the name of God, please remain to save me. I am out collecting berries close by and shall return this evening. Thank you, Chris McCandless, August question mark. So he put that sign on the door clearly at some point when he had been trying to find food. Uh, but sadly, the hunters would go inside and they would find uh, Chris, who who was dead, still in his sleeping bag. So just taking a bit of a wider angle now, in Into the Wild, in the book, John mentions other similar stories to Chris, including his own. So stories of young men who basically wanted to get away from civilization, explore the wild, love off the land, all of that type of thing. And there was another tragic tale which he mentions, which I wanted to mention briefly here to show that this isn't an isolated incident and that the Alaskan wildlife, you know, can be very, very difficult. So Carl McCunn was an American wildlife photographer and he had wanted to explore the um, Alaskan wilderness and wanted to spend some time alone. So in March 1981, he got a bush pilot to drop him off in Alaska and he took a lot of supplies at that point, thousands and thousands of, (laughs) thousands, hundreds of kilos of supplies, uh, hundreds of rolls of film uh, and he took two rifles and a shotgun. And when he first got there, he initially, as soon as he got there, he just like threw a load of bullets in the river because he just thought he wouldn't need them. And he thought he looked silly with a bike because he had too many. And so Carl had a good summer. He took lots of photos, spent time out in nature. But it became clear at some point that he thought 
he was relatively sure that he had, but he hadn't confirmed the booking with the pilot to actually come back and get him. So he thought he was going to get picked up in August, but he clearly hadn't actually communicated that with anyone. So as it passed August, he came to realise he hadn't been clear enough uh, and that by mid-August, no one was coming. So he started hunting at that point to try and keep himself going. Seemed to be relatively successful with it. One really tragic bit of this story is that a plane actually did fly over his camp. So there just happened to be someone out in the out in the bush and a plane did fly over the over the camp and he thought he was rescued and that help would be coming. And so at the time, he was so excited that he was like punching the air and then the pilot did a few loops around and came back. Um, but when he looped around... Chris was like, sorry, not Chris. Carl was like, oh yeah, I'm being rescued. Cool, I'll go and start packing. And so it was only later when no one else came that he looked it up and he realized when he was punching the air, that's actually a sign to mean I'm okay and don't need help. Um, and then as he has it headed inside, by the time that he came around the third time, the pilot just assumed, oh, he's fine. He's gone back in, you know, no urgency. Which I just think is so sad. So at this point he did... Carl did consider trying to walk out, but it was too weak. And and another tragic thing about this one, which is kind of similar to, to Chris, is that there was a hut with supplies only a few miles away from where Carl was staying. And the park team were pretty sure he was aware of it because they had talked about it before he went into the bush. But for some reason, he never went to this hut, which had all of the supplies in it. By early December, Carl had run out of food. He decided to use all of his remaining fuel and built him a fire and then he committed suicide by shooting himself and so his body and diaries and photos were found after his friends were alerted by him not returning by february and they sent off to to look for him so again like just a really other tragic story which just shows that there is this pull to the wild but it's very much not an isolated incident that a lot of people do go out there and don't take care of themselves and don't plan it in the way that you need to and tragedy strikes again and again. So going back to Chris, there's then been a bit of a debate since his death whether he died from starvation, uh, so just the fact that he couldn't kill and find enough food or whether something else happened as part of it. And this really, this debate goes back to like a fundamental thing that some people think that Chris was like a free spirit and went off to find himself and was doing a really great thing and others just seeing him as like a bit of an idiot basically <laughs> just someone that wasn't prepared that didn't look after himself that didn't look after the wild that had no right to be going out there and and doing this and 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 wasting those resources and i think that's where the argument comes in the people that think he was just you know a waster basically think that he probably starved and just wasn't able to sustain himself whereas those who who see what he did as being quite noble and quite inspirational really want to dig in more and really understand why did he die why did he kind of so rapidly go downhill when he was you know up until that point he had done more than three months in the wild totally fine so how did he he die within within a very short period of time and there was a few theories so the first one was around rabbit something called rabbit starvation and so this is a scenario where a human basically eats too much lean protein which is why it's called rabbit starvation because rabbits are very lean meat so if a human tries to just survive on lean protein 
they just can't get all of the nutrients they need from it. So, you know, as humans, we need protein, fats, carbs. And so if you just ate protein forever, you just won't get all of the nutrients you need. And so even though you're eating, you're not you're not fixing the starvation problem. You're still, you still are technically starving. One of the other theories was around something called Swainsonanine poisoning, which is, uh, was found in seeds. So it became clear from the photos that Chris relied on seeds more for food as time went on. So he would, would forage for, for seeds and then eat them. And as you might remember earlier, he mentioned in his diary around the, the pot seeds, the potato seeds, making him ill. So we do think he was eating a lot of seeds. And there was a possibility that some of the seeds contained that swainsonanine. That is just a toxin that can be found in some seeds just due to the time of year and mold and all of that type of thing. But that uh, compound causes poisoning, basically, and it stops uh, the body being able to absorb nutrients. So even if Chris was still eating and he was still able to consume all of the nutrients he needed, that type of poisoning would mean that he just would still be effectively starving. So he would still be getting weaker and weaker as he goes. So that was was one of them. The next one was around something a very similar thing where he was being poisoned again by something in the seeds that was uh, causing the impact. But in this one, they think potentially he had a condition called latherism. Latherism? And latherism would... By eating, the, by eating a lot of the toxin, latherism happens. And latherism is basically where your body again starts to shut down. And it results in paralysis. Uh, so it, it basically stops the, the legs working and, and, and paralyzes you slowly. And that is potentially something that could have been happening to him because he does say earlier that he was having those problems standing. So what this would mean was that he was very weak and would really struggle to get out there and to, to do all of the hunting and, and gathering that he needed to do. So those were the the poisoning theories. There are a few other theories out there that he was injured in some other way uh, based on the note that says he was injured uh, and some of the photos. Some people think that maybe he'd like really hurt his arm and dislocated his shoulder, but he doesn't. I mean, there's, there's no mention of it anywhere in the uh, in the diary and it's not it's not heard of it anywhere elsewhere. And then, yeah, the other th- theory that I said around starvation so I think from my point of view, probably one of the poisoning ones makes the most sense just because of the rapid deterioration that he had. And because he was like, uh, like we said, he, he had been out there for a reasonable amount of time by that point. So I would have thought that if he was going to die from starvation, it would have happened sooner. But even even if it was poisoning that caused his death and not starvation, I think he still made a lot of problematic choices and still made a lot of errors in his trip. And I, you know, I have no issue with with wanting to get off the grid and, and do all of that kind of thing. You know, I understand that people have that call, but I think there is a way to, you know, meet nature and work with nature in a way that doesn't impact nature itself, but also keeps you safe and, and stops you from from having any issues. But I think potentially to people that do want to do that, being off the grid is such a big part of it and if you were to take a map and radio and all that kind of thing maybe it wouldn't give you the fulfillment that that they were looking for so I do I do go a bit a bit back and forth as to whether I think what he did was a good idea or not Uh, but I think that 
it made sense to him and it made sense based on his background and his character what he did. So moving on then into what we learnt from this one. So this is pretty similar to what we talked about when uh, from the Lausanne and Chris Creamer's podcast a few episodes ago. So the same things about trying to be safe. Like I said, I think there's there's basic safety mechanisms which he could have done, which would have saved him. So having a map, uh, you know, taking a compass, just just having some form of navigation equipment. And like I say. I understand that people want to get off the grid, but that what, what what's wrong with just having a map, right? It just seems kind of common sense to to take basic survival equipment with you. Also, follow the laws. So, what everything he did was against the law. He should not have been camping in the park. Uh, he didn't have licenses for anything. He would just, you know, totally rebelled against everything. So, you know, follow the law if you are off camping or, or hiking, any, anything like that. Uh, and like I said we're about in the last episode, let someone know where you're going and let someone know when you're planning on returning and what should happen if you don't return by by a certain date what what should go on and i think that's especially true in like the carl story because carl told his family he said like oh don't worry if i'm not back by whatever date i might have just decided to stay a bit longer and that's why his family waited so long to raise alarm and get some you know get the pilots to go back and look for him but if he had said you know if i'm not back by september something's gone wrong come and look for me then he would still be alive. And I just think it's that it's those really basic principles which I think we need to do no matter how much you want to get away from from everything. <laughs> so yeah, I would be really interested to hear from you and what you think of this story, especially if you've uh, read a little bit more into it in the, in the book and stuff. Did you think what he did was this kind of noble pursuit or do you think that he was just being stupid and being a young man and not, you know not looking after himself and and going off the off the rails i'd be yeah very keen to hear what you think so like i mentioned earlier in terms of key sources into the wild book is really good i also recommend his other book into thin air which i'm hoping to do another episode on at some point in future i also recommend that movie there is another good documentary which is called return to the wild and that's a documentary on you i found it on youtube eventually and it follows Corinne so it's quite a lot later but it talks about Corinne and her book and the revelations that they made and they visit the bu- the bus and you can see uh, the habitat and the and the area that he was in which I think really helps bring it to life a bit more seeing the rivers that type of thing and seeing the photos if you just google for Chris McCandless you'll see and I think I've got a link to it in the in the sources as well you'll see uh different the, all the photos that, he's t- that he took, especially the self-portraits, and I think the self-portraits are very uh, interesting and, and definitely worth a look at. So yeah, thank you very much for listening. Uh, back to the normal things that I say at the end. So uh, please do keep in touch. So please do follow me on Instagram at when it goes wrong pod, uh, and on Twitter at it goes wrong pod. Do drop me an email with your thoughts. Uh, I'd be very keen to hear from you, and you can email me on when it goes wrong pod at gmail.com. Definitely let me know if you have any future episode ideas. Uh, and the same as uh, one of the last, one of the most recent episodes. If anything in this episode has triggered anything or, uh, you know, we're in, <laughs> we're in a hard time at the moment. So if you do need support, I'll leave links to uh, support mechanisms that are available to you in the show notes as well. Mm-hmm.